The following Splinter View was featured on episode 349 of Cognitive Dissonance with Tom and Cecil as we discussed Lyle Shelton from the Australian Christian Lobby. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Cognitive Mentality. Joining us today is gender-fluid enthusiast from the Australian Christian Lobotomy, Lyle Shelton. Lyle, welcome to the show. Pleasure. You're very brave mixing religion and politics. That's what we do here. Now, how's Jesus going? Let's put Jesus aside for a moment, and you and I are great fans of him. Confirmed. Now, I wasn't kidding when I described you as a gender-fluid enthusiast earlier, as there are two meanings here. And this is not a gay-straight issue. Well, there's that. And there's also the other definition of fluid to consider. Come. Exactly. Now, like many Christian leaders before you, you're a proponent of making man juice easier to obtain. Anonymous sperm donation is a good thing. But the ACL policy itself is as confused as Ken Ham at a biology lecture. What's the official stance? I'm not uh, wanting to propose anything against any fellow Australians. Uh, People have a right to live their lives as they see fit in a in a free society like Australia. But uh, I do think there is an issue with changing the definition of marriage. But your off-the-record opinion differs slightly? There is no practical inequality against gay couples in Australia. Equally baffling. Let's discuss the topic of Christians worming their way into public schools. I think most of us would recognise that probably hasn't been for the better. Spot on there. This is a massive issue, apart from the injustice that it creates for children. In terms of teaching nonsensical stuff as fact, or the tens of thousands of innocent children who have been the unwilling recipients of... uh, Sperm donation. Hmm, by Christian leaders. This is a resource for four-year-olds. Ugh, not a good one. We're often accused of doing other things. Disgraceful. And also the reason there's currently a royal Commission into Sexual Abuse in Australia. But the education thing, the community of Christian volunteers who will be teaching the children, do they have the tools to educate? Given the the knowledge gap in the community, I think there's a big task ahead. Hmm. Finally, unsubstantiated claims of gay ACL orgies have surfaced, rumoured to have been attended by Ray Comfort himself. Now, sources say he was on a desk, mooning attendees with a show of substandard rectal hygiene. I think what's on the table is a reasonable thing. I think the date is a problem. Not difficult to resolve with some WD-40 and a chisel, though. He's a hero. Well, Sheldon, thanks for your time. Thank you, Christina. Any final thoughts? Religion should never assert its beliefs. Welcome to the Herd Mentality Podcast, an eclectic non-weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing, entertain you with some scintillating repartee. This is a listener-supported show and you can help boost quality and quantity at HerdMentalityPodcast.com and then click on support. Your contribution makes all the difference for the show and 10% of it goes to women in developing countries. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality. Joining me from an obscure quadrant of the universe, I've got Richard Lane. Welcome. Thank you very much. So, who are you and where do you work? Well, I think you already mentioned I'm Richard Lane, and I'm an astronomer at the university, well, I should say it in Spanish, really, because it's in Chile. So it's Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile, PUC, P 
P-U-C for short. Uh, it's in Santiago, and that's where I work. I'm a postdoc. I've been working there since October two years ago. Well, yeah, so that's basically it. That's where I work. Now, you get paid to look at things. I do. I get paid to look at stuff in the sky, even. <laughs> I got the opportunity to read your thesis. <laughs> Please don't tell me you did that. <laughs> uh, there are some <laughs> wonderful quotes in there from Douglas Adams, Monty Python, and J.R. Tolkien, written in the original Elvish, I think, from memory. Yeah, at least. One of the one of the chapters, I decided that one of the things that I was researching, and still am, actually, was a thing called the Monoceros Stream, or the Monoceros Ring, as it became known. Uh, in the literature. And so the chapter on that, I decided that I would include the one ring to rule them all quote from Lord of the Rings in the original Elvish, the original <laughs> ancient Elvish, I think it is even mm. old Elvish. No, the, the good Elvish, not that new rubbish yeah, one. <laughs> exactly. The stuff that Sauron still speaks probably. <laughs> so a monoceros, is that some sort of yeah. unicorn? <laughs> so the monoceros, okay, so mono I'm assuming most people know what a constellation is, uh, you know, the, the images that you can draw using dot-to-dot -dot pictures in the, of the stars in the sky. And monoceros is one of the constellations, and it's uh, a southern constellation. Hang on, you might have to edit that, because I don't know, is it a southern constellation? I've forgotten exactly where in the sky it is. Anyway, it's a constellation <laughs> in the sky, it's called monoceros, and the, this, this over-density of stars, now called the monoceros ring, was originally discovered in that constellation, and and so that's why it ended up with that name. So now, though, it, this original detection of this overdensity of stars has been traced around almost the entire Milky Way. But it's in the plane of the Milky Way, which means that if you look at the Milky Way as a flat disk of stars, which most of the stars are in, in the disk, then this stream of stars or this overdensity of stars is also in the plane, the same plane as the disk. And it's been traced almost all the way around the, the galaxy, the Milky Way, but except for the bit where you're looking through the center of the galaxy because there's just too much dust and too many stars to see the other side. But this thing may or may not be an extragalactic object, meaning that it may or may not have come from outside the Milky Way. Oh. It might have, but it, no one really knows. It's also possible that it's just a part of the Milky Way disk that we only recently discovered or, or uncovered. Yeah, we're able to see via the magic of uh, telescopes and so forth. Um, exactly. And one of the chapters that was sort of around where you referenced that in your thesis was about dark matter and, and the like. You did a calculation in there to work out how much dark matter there is in a galaxy or universe. How do you do that? So it's a slightly long story, but you <laughs> effectively you look at how much light you're getting from uh, – well, in, in, in this particular instance, I was looking at globular clusters, which are spherical balls of stars, and every galaxy we look at, including the Milky Way and the Andromeda Galaxy, which is the nearest other galaxy to us, or the nearest large galaxy to the Milky Way, they all have a whole lot of these things called globular clusters, spherical balls of something like a million stars or something like that. And these things are thought to not contain any dark matter. This this was a bit of a I mean a bit of a hot topic in astronomy not so long ago about globular clusters and the fact that they look like they don't need any dark matter, but some people were looking at them in you know in a slightly different way, and that's how scientists do things. They look at things in different ways and finding that they look like they probably do need dark matter, which is really weird because these things are quite small, only a million stars or so, and they shouldn't have any detectable dark matter. I mean, the amount of dark matter in them, if they only have, you know, a million stars or so, is insignificant compared to the dark matter that the Milky Way has, um, and which means you just, you wouldn't detect the amount of dark matter in them. And so the way you can check this is you see the amount of light that comes from the stars, from the visible matter that's in the cluster, and then you can weigh 
as in weigh, put something on a scale to weigh it, but you, you use the thing called a dynamical tracer, which in this case is the stars themselves. You can measure the velocities of the stars by the uh, thing called the Doppler shift, which is if the star's moving away from you, it looks a bit redder mm. because the wavelength of light has been shifted to the red. And if it's moving towards you, it looks a bit bluer uh, for the opposite reason. And so uh, you can use these things as these stars as dynamical tracers, and you can basically get a mass of the cluster at a certain radius or within a certain radius. And so then you, if you have the amount of light and the amount of mass, you get a thing called mass to light ratio. And that behaves a certain way if there's no dark matter and it behaves differently if there is dark matter. And so that's what I was doing, checking to see if there was dark matter by looking at the mass to light ratio uh, as a function of the radius. I hope that makes sense. Well, I'll listen back to it half a dozen times and wrap my head around it. I got Doppler shift, though. I knew what that one was. Good. <laughs> <laughs> in doing your thesis, you managed to get some time on a couple of different telescopes in Hawaii and uh, Siding Spring in New South Wales. I was interested to learn that Subaru make telescopes. Yeah. Interesting, that, isn't it? It turns out that it's not actually the Subaru company uh, that makes cars, though. Uh-huh. It's a, a completely different thing. The Subaru, the, the, if you have a look at a Subaru, the logo of the Subaru car company is a bunch of stars. And those, that bunch of stars is what we in the West call the Pleiades. It's a, a cluster of stars, an open cluster, not like the globular clusters I was talking about before, but an open cluster, which contain only a few hundred stars. And the Pleiades is one of the best known ones of those, in, at least in the Milky Way. And it has something like 50 stars, maybe 100. I forget the number exactly. But if you look into the sky with your naked eye, if you're a 10-year-old and not a 40-year-old like I am, at least so you have good eyes, you can pick out seven of the stars quite easily. If you've really, really good eyes, you can probably pick out a couple more. But they're called in the West, we call it the Seven Sisters or the Pleiades. And in Japan, it turns out that they call it Subaru. And so that's what the telescope's named after. And that's also what the company that makes cars is named after, but completely independently named. Right. And are we expecting lawsuits? Uh, I doubt it somehow. I don't know if, I don't know if you can trademark a constellation or a, or a cluster of stars. I'm not sure if that works. Well, trademarking. Well, funny that because one of the questions I've got is something that's been in the news recently about Goldman Sachs talking about the feasibility of mining asteroids for rare earth materials. So things like diamonds right. and, uh, rare earth metals, etc. Yeah. Lithium is probably a big one. Yeah. We're, <laughs> Just have a look at what Tesla's doing with their Gigafactory. They need as much lithium as possible. So what's your take on this? How feasible is it really to mine an asteroid? I think it depends on how many years you give it until it's feasible. I think it, the answer is it will be feasible at some point. But will it be feasible in the time that Tesla needs it to be feasible? Mm, probably not. But, I mean... <laughs> The, the thing about mining asteroids is that it's it's a great idea, but it's technically kind of challenging because you've got an asteroid flying by and somehow you've got to tether that or push it off course or do something at least to get into orbit around the Earth. And then after that, you have to send things up and you know mine it and then send the stuff back to the Earth. But I think the biggest problem is going to be getting one of the asteroids that goes near the Earth. There's a whole series of asteroids called near-Earth asteroids and the ones that, you know, pass near the Earth. And technology is moving pretty quickly and, uh, you know, and, and with people like SpaceX and stuff doing things, incredible things with rockets, eventually, eventually I would say, yeah, it'll be feasible. But you've got to basically, pro- well, I think probably the easiest way to do it is to go up and stick a rocket on it. And that's not an easy thing to do. You've got to stick a rocket on the asteroid, push it out of its orbit, get its orbit to be something, you know, that goes quite close to the Earth and ends up in a, a fairly stable orbit around the Earth and then mine it from there. It's technically mm. challenging, but I think it'll be doable, but it's not going to be ready for 
Tesla. I, don't, I think uh, <laughs> the, the Tesla company might have gone under by the time that's possible. <laughs> I was going to suggest we use some of Kim Jong-un's uh, nukes, but I'd fail to see how we could get something that erratic to push something into a stable orbit. Tell you what you could do if you wanted to use nukes. You just explode the asteroid completely into lots and lots of little shards and then hope some of them rain down on the Earth and bring some of the good stuff with it. Big sort of gamma hide-and-seek trying to find the bits and pieces, especially when it's... Well, not only that, if you've got a if you've got lots and lots of bits of an asteroid raining down on the Earth, then have a lot of tidal waves and a lot of buildings damaged and a lot of people dying. Mm. Okay, so we Probably might just best way to go. <laughs> wait until the professionals have that wrapped up. One other bit of news that I wanted to ask you about, the new exoplanet, and you probably know it by name, a GJ11132b has been detected about 39 light years away and it's got an atmosphere. And from memory from the article, I think it was about 1.6 times the size of Earth. How optimistic are you about finding life on these sort of planets? Well, to be honest, there was also, I'm not sure if this is the same uh, system that you're talking about, but there was a system discovered quite recently and quite close, uh, which has seven planets, I think the number was, and at least three or four of those were in what's called the Goldilocks zone, because the only thing we know about life is what we know about life on Earth. That's that's what we're basing our searches for life on. I mean, if if we think that well, we know at least that, that life on Earth needs water, liquid water, to survive or to get going, to flourish. And so we're looking for things like liquid water on other planets because if, I mean, if we only have one data point, that's life on Earth to, to go by, then that's what we're going to look for. I mean, we don't have any idea about what other kinds of life might be. So, you know, there's a, that's what we're looking for. And so these, these planets in the Goldilocks zone, uh, interesting because that's where liquid water could be if there was water there. Yeah, not too hot. So is this the not same system cold. you're talking about? I think it is. Not too hot, not too cold, just that, that Goldilocks zone. If it's too close to the sun, all the water gets blown off with the solar radiation. If it's too far away, well, there's not enough light to grow a tree. Well, not enough heat to keep the water liquid either, which is the biggest problem. True. Very difficult to evolve in ice. Exactly. At least complex life. I mean, there's a possibility of, of you know, very, very primitive bacterial or something life to live. Uh, I mean, it's been found in the uh, ice in Antarctica, for example. But yeah, complex life like, you know, intelligent type life, that's, yeah, that's difficult to evolve if you're stuck under or stuck inside a big ice shelf. Well, there's certainly quite a few projects ongoing at the moment to detect life on other planets in our own solar system. So Mars, bacteria, that sort of thing. And I think it's, is it Titan or one of the moons? Yeah, Titan is certainly one of them. Uh, Enceladus, which is one of the moons of Jupiter. Uh, and it's, uh, if you have a look at, uh, if you Google it or whatever you like to do to find things online, there's amazing images of, of, uh, some water geysers that are coming out from the center of, or from underneath the, the ice crust around on, that's, that covers the moon. And so this has got water geysers, like basically water volcanoes, effectively, uh, pushing water out from the inside, well, underneath the ice crust, like I said. And so, you know, if there's anywhere we're going to find water, it's, I mean, life, it's probably on one of these moons of Jupiter, maybe Titan as well. I mean, Titan has a lot of good things that are needed for life as we know it to exist. You know, there's hydrocarbons there and in, in abundance. And so, you know, that's certainly a, a possibility too. But, you know, your question was basically, what do I think about, you know, the possibilities of finding life, I think? And I think, well, I think they're good. But again, it might take a while. 
I think, honestly, it's probably something that will happen. But there is, is it Fermi's paradox? Yes, I'm pretty sure it's Fermi's paradox, which says, where are all the people in the universe? The universe has been around for so long. There's been plenty of time for lots of intelligent life to evolve. And why are we the only ones that we know about? Why haven't we got signals from other places? And, you know, that's still a paradox. There's a lot of questions and answers that bring up more questions about why that might be. But if we're going to find life, at least in the near future, it's going to be something primitive that isn't cows. Mm. You know, it's going to be something more like bacteria. <laughs> and with Jupiter's moons, Jupiter's so far away from the sun that it's the water isn't water there necessarily because of the radiation coming from the sun. It's more to do with gravitational stresses placed on the moon as it goes around the planet. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's called tidal forces. And the, the reason for it is because, for example, with Io, which is not a very nice place to go, probably no water, but lots of sulfur, uh, which is the closest moon to Jupiter, the gravitational attraction of Jupiter or from Jupiter on the near side of Io, the side of Io nearest to Jupiter, is different to the gravitational attraction on the side of Io that's further away. And so what that means is that the moon gets compressed as it orbits Jupiter in one direction and then as it goes around as Io uh, spins on its own axis different parts of the surface experience different gravitational attractions attractions and different tidal forces so the whole thing gets squished one direction and then squished the opposite direction and so that heats the interior of the of the moon and that's why you have these sulfur geysers on on Io mm. and so yeah that's that's nothing to do with the amount of sunlight it gets because you're right there's not very much sunlight out there Okay, if we can't uh, necessarily find life via um, digging it up, we continue to look at radio signals that come from our galactic community there. I've been doing something called Boink for many, many years. Would you explain to us how that works? Sure. Well, I mean, Boink's, well, I'll go back a little bit further. Before there was Boink, there was a thing called SETI at home, SETI spelled S-E-T-I, which stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. At home, meaning you're doing the search at home on your own computer. And so what you do, or at least what you did, uh, is you download a little packet of information that comes from various radio telescopes around the world, and you analyze with your computer's downtime, your, you know, your computer's CPU downtime when you're not actually using your computer. It analyzes these data packets to look for things that could be considered intelligent well, an intelligent signal of some kind, you know, spikes at particular wavelengths or, or something. I forget exactly what their algorithm is. And now this thing called Boink uh, has come around, which is a platform that now you can do a whole lot of different things that are called something at home. And the SETI at home is still one of those. And you can still search for extraterrestrials on your computer at home. And then there's other ones. There's like Einstein at home and the Milky Way at home. And the Milky Way at home is something that's something that uh, is, you know, fairly close to my heart in some ways because they're looking to build a basically a better 3d model of of our own galaxy the milky way hmm. so that's well i've yeah, dedicated, an interesting one yeah for well i've been doing this for oh my goodness over 10 years and i think i've got about 10 million credits with uh, seti at home and i'm still yet to find anyone who wants to talk to me but since you and i first became acquainted a few months ago i asked you which of those projects would be most beneficial to you. And you, know, you said to me at the time, it doesn't directly impact me, but like you say, it's close to your heart. But I've uh, racked up 10,827 tasks for about 1.38 million credits since... Uh, 10,000 tasks? Mm. Well, that's 10,000 wow. packets of data that I've pulled down to my CPU and, and processed and returned. My computer Very never cool. turns off. It, it's 
always doing something. And that something at the moment is partly Milky Way at home. Yeah, I dedicate about 20% of the downtime to that and the other 80 to finding intelligent life elsewhere. Well, I appreciate your... Uh conviction to my cause uh, the great thing about the milky way at home thing is what i mean so each of those packets that you're downloading is a model so what it does is it compares that model uh, with specific parameters that input into the model and it compares that to a data and a real data set from our point of view inside the milky way from a, an organization called the sloan digital sky survey and so what what it's doing is comparing one of the models with certain certain parameters input into the model with what we really see in the sky and and then it'll See and it gives you some kind of evaluation on how on on the likelihood that that's a, a good representation of the real milk and then send back and then they'll send you another packet which is another one of these models with different parameters and do the same thing again. So you've done ten thousand of these models now. See, I, all I did was add it in there. I don't, you know, it takes up no time or energy really on on my part, other than a slightly increased electricity bill. See, I never see what happens after the data goes away. And no, the user doesn't. You do. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's something that I would I really think that all of these at home projects should really do is is they should have some kind of way for the user to to, to know what's been done with that packet, and it should it, you should know that that's a particular you know that that's a model and it should give you the parameters that those that this is the model with these parameters and this is the likelihood function of the of the fit and I think it'd be really interesting if if it gave you that information back, but then again I guess that's more bandwidth for them to deal with and stuff. Oh, true, and they're running on a very tight budget, but look, that information is available. If you go through the client and dig it up, you can see which minute of radio telescope time and which telescope it came from. Uh, I think that's even part of the screensaver, certainly for the SETI at home one. It tells for you- the SETI at home, yeah, but I've never used, I, and to be honest, and this is, I, like I said, it's near, near to my, I mean, it was a bit dear to my heart, this Milky Way at home thing, but admittedly, I've actually never <laughs> used it myself, which means I'm a terrible, terrible person. I'm not here to judge. So what are you working on right this second? Well, right now, the reason that I'm in Santiago doing the job that I'm doing is because there's been a survey in the Northern Hemisphere at Apache Point Observatory in New Mexico in southern US, and it's called Apogee, which stands for the Apache Point Observatory Galactic Evolution Experiment. So what it's doing is, it, in this case, it's well, it's, it's an instrument on a telescope, the, the Sloan Digital Sky Survey's own telescope. The instrument itself is a spectrograph, which means that the light is collected from an individual star, runs down an optic fiber. You may know this, and the, but the listeners may not, so I'll explain a little bit about spectra. If you break the visible light that you get from that star up into the rainbow of colors by passing it through a prism, say, uh, you get a thing called the spectrum. That's called the spectrum. Mm. And so we get individual spectra from individual stars. And the idea of this is you can calculate or measure, I guess is the word, uh, what the star is made of. You can measure how fast it's moving uh, towards you or away from you with the Doppler shift that I mentioned earlier. There's a whole lot of things you can you can work out. You know what kind of star it is, whether it's a red dwarf star or a, you know, a blue giant star of some description. One of the things that is just jumping out at me now, recalling your uh, thesis, was a word that I'd not seen before, metallicity. Yeah, exactly. And that is, uh, it's an astronomy specific word and it doesn't exist in any of the dictionaries in, if you're using Microsoft Word or anything, it'll always spit out an error saying we don't know this word. Basically what it means is, well, astronomers call anything heavier than hydrogen or anything heavier than helium, I suppose, a metal. And so that means that oxygen is a metal in astronomy, which right. makes no sense, but <laughs> at least, at least in this, this particular circumstance. And so metallicity is a measure of how much 
metal, meaning anything heavier than helium, really, is in a star. And that gives you an idea of how, well, a few things, how old the star might be itself and also how much, how, at the environment that the star was, was born from because originally the universe was only hydrogen and helium. But now if you look at, say, the sun as a, an example of a star that's close by that we can analyze reasonably easily, you see that there's, you know, there's there's not just hydrogen and helium, there's all, you know, and then lithium, but there's also a lot of oxygen and iron and all sorts of other elements that must have come from stars that lived before it and then went and exploded in big supernova explosions and spread all of this material uh, out into the into the you know the, the local universe and then all of that gas which was the original star that was shed as, as the supernova exploded condenses again and becomes another star and so all of that all the metals all the sort of pollution if you want to call it that um, all becomes part of the new star say the sun for example and so then if you look at the sun's spectrum then you can say that okay there's there's sodium and iron and you know argon and neon and all these other things in the star and so that's basically exactly what we're doing with this apogee project but with our sun you know for certain that it doesn't have the mass to be able to fuse together enough or it doesn't have the energy to create say iron or, or more complex heavier metals certainly nothing heavier than iron anyway yeah and so that's true absolutely and because it doesn't it, it definitely doesn't have enough energy to produce anything heavier than iron so if if there are things that are heavier than iron in there then yeah then they must have come from a previous version of a star and because supernova explosions when a, a when a big star gets to the end of its life a star that's more than a few times the mass of the sun they can explode in a thing called a supernova and the amount of the pressures and the temperatures of the, that explosion mean that you can you can create uh, elements that are much much heavier than than iron and so for example things like gold and lead and you know all those kinds of things and so that means that all the gold all the lead all of those heavy, heavier elements that you have on the earth were all born in a star that existed before the sun existed. Hmm. And now you're able to look at stars that are tens of thousands of light years away and do those same experiments just with light. Pretty much, knowing that these stars have this, you know, this metallicity, meaning usually it's a measure of, say, the iron abundance divided by the hydrogen abundance. As an example, that's like a one measure of how you measure metallicity. So knowing that stars have a particular metallicity means that you know that. They were born in, a, in an environment that had a lot of, for example, gold in them. I mean, that you know, was a random example, probably not a good example, but a lot of iron, say, anyway, hmm. or a lot less iron than you might expect, for example. And that gives you an idea of, of the, how the Milky Way itself has evolved over time. And that's uh, an interesting question because basically we don't really know the answer to that yet. And this is something that we're trying to come to grips with. And so this was originally started at Apache Point in the US, but that's uh, you can only see half of the sky from each half of the earth and so the principal investigator a guy named steve majeski decided he wanted to build the same instrument but put it into the south and put on a telescope in the south in the southern hemisphere so uh, it took him 12 years and finally in when was it i think it was in january we finally got what's called first light which means we finally got light from real stars down the fibers into the spectrograph and we were able to actually start using the instrument after 12 years of struggle from <laughs> Steve's point of view and uh, from you know from a lot of other people as well what do you do with the data once you've collected it well i mean the, the raw data have to be what's called reduced which means you get the raw data and you you subtract off the effects of the the ccd chips and things and atmosphere and all the stuff that you don't want uh, so you've just got a pure spectrum from the star. And then 
it goes into a huge database, basically, and then people who are part of the Sloan Digital Sky Survey and part of Apogee, they have priority. Sorry, that's not the word. Exclusive. Proprietary. Right. Proprietary ah. is the word. For. <laughs> so, yeah, so the, the data are proprietary for a while, and that while depends a little bit on various things, but it's probably a year and sometimes two. And so then the collaboration itself uses that data to investigate whatever they decide they want to investigate, you know, that small group of that's, I mean, the collaboration itself is several thousand people, but there are, you know, small groups within that collaboration of, you know, a few people, 10 people, 20 people who work on the same thing and want to know something specific about the Milky Way in some way. And so they will take some small part of the data set that we have and they will analyze that particular data set to look at i I don't know as an example maybe blue straggler stars or something you know something random or or a particular globular cluster that they're interested in or Mm. a particular dwarf galaxy that's in orbit around the milky way that they might be interested in and then after the proprietary period there is a a public data release and then then and then the, the data are all public and anyone in the astronomical community or even people outside the astronomical community, if they want, can access the data and uh, download it and write their own papers and analyze it to look at whatever they feel they want to look at. Give it a fresh set of eyes. But you exactly these telescopes must generate enormous amounts of data. I mean, what sort of on-site processing equipment do you have to, to store and process? You'd be surprised, actually, with at least with this particular survey, we've got 300 fibers per What's, we have these fibers plugged into a plate, an aluminium plate, um, and there's 300 fibers on each one. And so each night we will observe probably about two to 300 stars, depending on how good the night is, how long the night is, you know, depending on which part of the year we're in and how the weather's doing and things. So one night's data is only something like guessing a little bit, but a gigabyte or 10, but certainly not more than 10 gigabytes or so, or maybe 100. But I know I wouldn't think even that. It's probably more like 10 gigabyte data per night. And then overnight, this survey um, has their data center in Utah in the US. Every night, the data always all gets sent to Utah, or at least a copy of it does. And then they analyze it, uh, or they do the reduction and stuff uh, from Utah. Oh, so it's all done off So that's how that works. I mean, they, but but the computers we have at the observatory to, to do everything, to store the data and stuff, are surprisingly not anything more than you would have at home almost i mean they're nothing nothing particularly amazing hmm. nothing nothing huge and nothing crazily expensive the expensive part is the instrument well they're all custom made well the instrument itself yeah i mean it's it's 100% a one off you would never build another one the same just put a dollar value on that um honestly i don't know i would love to know but i don't know I, but it would be it's certainly in the millions of dollars hmm. all right so hobbyists out there want your own no problem give richard a call Yeah, absolutely. I'll just throw you a few million dollars. You can build your own. Very well. Thank you very much for coming on to explain all of this to me. It's always good fun. Uh, If anyone would like to help out, just Google the word boink, and that's Beta Omega Indigo November Charlie. Download that application. And then within it, once you've created a little account, just go and add Milky Way at home. It'll present you with a selection of about one or two dozen different uh, things you can dedicate your CPU to. If you have a gaming computer, for example, the software will also make use of your GPU, say graphics cards or card. I've I've got a couple because I'm a nerd. It can uh, dedicate separate pieces of processing to just the graphics and then the other for the CPU. So it makes a, a very efficient use of whatever computer you're going to throw at it. I think you can even do it on tablets and, and that sort of thing now, or certainly netbooks and whatever you've got lying around, if it is going all the time, 
I'd encourage you to get involved and add that project Milky Way at Home to your Boink client. And Richard, anything further to add? You did mention that you might be drinking beer with me at this time of day uh, while we did this. But uh, I think it's what I think sort of 9.30 in the morning is a little bit before beer time. No, it's still coffee time. Beer time isn't for another couple of hours. (laughs) Exactly. Well, I'm definitely going to go get some beer. That's the last thing I'm going to do. Why not? Richard, thank you very much for coming on the show. Oh, absolutely. No problem. Thanks a lot for having me. Herd mentalists, hear me. Questionable Adam here from the year 2077, communicating with you in the past via the power of Donald Trump's premonitions. Hello, Adam. In my timeline, Emperor Trump's dementia has become so advanced that he's authorized Tomahawk missiles be launched into any country that begins with the letter S and ends in A. So Saudi Arabia, Serbia, Slovenia, Somalia, South Africa, South Korea and Samoa have all been wiped off the face of the planet, prompting a global shortage of Eastern European future Mrs. Trump's, as well as flat panel televisions. Our infrastructure is a disaster. Now you can help prevent this atrocity, just as LPD Happy, Goal, exclamation mark, David and Eric did this episode. By pledging a few dollars per episode at patreon.com slash herdmentality, along with all of the patrons of the show, 10% of the proceeds go to helping women in developing countries, such as Rima in Palestine for university. Yes. Zildiz in Kyrgyzstan for a degree in politics. Yes. And Suen in Nicaragua for a degree in journalism. Very proud of her. In your alternate future, these women will team up to discover a cure for Trump's dementia, and we can go back to business as usual by trying to imprison Hillary Clinton. That means a lot. Patrons have access to additional unedited material and sketches as well, so consider supporting the show if you don't already, or leave a review on the podcatcher of your choice. Now I must run! Ivanka Trump has declared war on a country called Merriam-Webster, and I'm worried that she think it might be shaped like Australia, so back to the bunker for me. Ta-ta! I happened upon Tim and Maynard at a Skeptics in the Pub night in Sydney. Find out more at maynard.com.au, M-A-Y-N-A-R-D, or by searching for the Doug Anthony All-Stars for Tim. Tim went on as guest speaker that evening. And joining me today in this muggy, sweaty, what is it, stickier than Charlie Sheen's bedsheets sort of (laughs) afternoon, I've got uh, Maynard. Hello, it's a great day for going commando, people. (laughs) And Tim Ferguson. Hi, commandos. It's a great day for going people. So whereabouts are you guys from in terms of podcasting? Because you're making waves. Well, well, as Tim often will claim, we are... what, What is our slogan, Tim? We are Australia's fastest growing podcast. Oh, wow. That's prestigious. We don't specify what measurement is being (laughs) defined. Also, Tim, we are Australia's most beloved podcast as well. And yeah. that's, that's objective. Yeah. Is that a, um, oh, what are the Kelly and Conway's, um, was it alternative facts? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. No, well, if Kelly Ann's on board, well, what's not to like? It's but, an alternative podcast. Yeah, but she's a bit wimpy. She takes, she doesn't take it far enough. We're talking an alternative <laughs> reality. A fact will only yeah. get you so far, a reality, you can live there. And she actually listens to the questions. I mean, really. <laughs> 
Like, that's going to last. Yeah, we do Bunga Bunga, which is part of the Planet Maynard suite of podcasts, which can be all about music or any sort of rubbish that I come across, or old Triple J shows of mine, or some village people interviews. But we've managed to get about 35 Bunga Bunga podcasts out, as well as you can follow Tim's life from when he was trying to be a senator to when he released his book, Carry a Big Stick. There's interviews all there in linear order. You could you could actually learn more about Tim than his wife knows, I reckon, by because she doesn't listen to him. No. <laughs> she gets mentioned a lot. Yeah. Mm. Just because she's very that's, good that's looking. The trick. Well, you, you've got to talk about good looking people. Right? Yeah, my wife gets a mention on the podcast on, on occasion, and uh, yeah. Yeah, for that reason, she chooses not to partake in the listening thing. Mm. Good looking lady, and you've got to mention the good looking ladies. Well, we like them. At least she's on the way. I mean, Beyonce. That's it. You know, how about that? How about that? Have a Kylie. Just come Beyonce, on, come on. Listen to your show, though. Uh, not yet. Um, she's been avoiding it. But when she does, it'll be even faster growing still. We'll be able to feel it. It will be like, uh, who was it the other night? Was it Stephen Gold- Colbert? No, 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 John Oliver, mm. who said that uh, soon the whole world will be connected and they'll all be watching their show. And just in case they are, let me say hello, Beyonce. And he made a little Beyonce gesture. Is that would, funny? People, would, would people be watching it over the NBN by any chance, do you think? Oh, yeah, the NBN <laughs> works. Once you get it revved up, you've really got to pump prime the fuel. But once it's on, it's a bit noisy. Obscure Australian joke I, I got the uh, the National Broadband Network on. Where, uh, in, 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 I finally found it. In, in, a, in a part of Newcastle. <laughs> and when it was first going for the first month, it went. its upload was as high as 56 kilobytes. Yeah, right. It, so it was actually marginally faster than dial-up for about a month or two because they hadn't they hadn't got enough backbone or, or, or something like that. Well, maybe I'm talking about our political parties. I'm not quite <laughs> sure. But there wasn't something they didn't have enough of. And so mm. it was useless. It was worse than it was before. And then they, it got better. But, uh, look, the porn comes faster than I've ever had it in my life. Porn comes faster? It, yeah. The yeah. trouble is... On, like I think I said that. I didn't express myself well. Porn. Porn. Yeah, sorry. The trouble is <laughs> the, porn, the porn plays at Benny Hill... Speed. Oh, the old yakety sax. Yeah, you've got a bit of yakety sax going. Yeah. I strongly endorse a little bit of uh, yakety sax in the background. Look, yeah. and a shout out to the cognitive dissident guys because at the end of their last episode I listened to, they had some of Trump's inauguration with Benny Hill theme in the background. An idea which I'm, I'm going to use on our next bunga bunga because <laughs> it, it, it just it just ruins everything. In fact, there is actually video of uh, Saddam Hussein being hung with the Benny Hill theme in the background, and I've got to say, <laughs> no, it, no. it does actually kind of. <laughs> It does actually work to a certain extent. I tried, I tried it on audience on an audience once, and I said, "So does it make everything funny?" And there was silence. And there was one woman from the back said, "No." So anyway, right. it's true, and, that, and that's why we've got a second seven, uh, seven second delay. Oh, yes, but yeah, play your porn fast at fast forward speed. It gets through it much more quickly. The punchline you always get to see that coming anyway. But um, it's worth it. It's worth it just to add a bit of lightness and happiness <laughs> in your day. I might put some in just after this little interview. Yeah, you play it at realistic speed, and it's also terribly serious, but in a way mundane. Switching gears because I'm, there's more people coming in here yes. quickly. Uh, Tim, you're currently on travelling, doing some Doug Anthony All Stars work. Yeah, Doug Anthony All Stars start touring towards the end of March. We start with Canberra Comedy Festival. And eventually we'll end up back in the UK. Because mm-hmm. you, uh, you did the UK recently as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, we won the Edinburgh Festival, which was exciting. That 
Yeah, we didn't just speak. So, where are you going to put it? That's a lot. You've got to spend a lot. Of, if you won the Edinburgh, where <laughs> oh, yeah. are you going to put the Edinburgh Festival? Well, it's mainly the juggling just goes on and on. We really did want to beat those jugglers because there's nothing more annoying no. than jugglers. They're just trumped up clowns, really. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> Maybe with a bit of better hand eye coordination. It's a totally useless skill, and other people have it. What gap are they filling? None. So, yeah, All Stars will be going back over. And uh, maybe we'll get to Canada. We're waiting for the Canadians to call, but they're on the NBN as well. Yeah, so whenever I have a Canadian guest on the show, uh, it's, it's Canadian internet. It's routed via Tajikistan. Fact. Really? Wow. No, I made that up. Oh. But, uh, That's <laughs> an alternative uh, fact. I could work in Australian politics with a yes. convincing lie like that. Here we are at a sceptics <laughs> meeting, but you've just seen how gullible we are. Yeah, yeah. 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 Say it with authority. So I came and saw you guys in uh, Sydney, uh, may have been a couple of times ago. I don't know how many times you've, you've come through since, but... Was it the Enmore or uh, Seymour yeah, Centre? Uh, Seymour Centre, Seymour Centre, because the Seymour Centre was where we organised the Unholy Trinity tour uh, a few years ago, and we cried laughing. So I strongly encourage uh, everyone to go and type in Doug Anthony All-Stars and then just the word dogs into yeah. YouTube because you'll probably you'll learn a lot maybe about yourself um, maybe about other people pet care is very important to us <laughs> with the stress on care careful I mm. think is probably what you mean to say Jim mm. just cough for me so uh, tonight we're at the uh, Skeptics in the Pub at the Occidental on it's York a, Street it's, first, it's the first Thursday of every month if you want to get along and be sceptical there Tim's just the guest for tonight I don't know who they've got next week but he won't next month but they won't be anywhere near as good no no. And, and I really hope people ask questions there's so many times you've thrown questions to the floor and no one really wants to say anything mm. like putting Benny Hill music exactly is that okay is that and I wasn't saying it was obviously wrong I was asking if it was funny or not it turns out I was wrong on both counts oh yeah. well no well what a bunch of very well, Maynard and Tim. Thank you very much. Good luck tonight. And, and just a quick way? promo: if you want to have a listen to Tim and working, like if you listen to like half the show, just listen to Tim's bit is the funniest bit. I'm pretty much the straight man of the show. It's Bunga Bunga. There's 35 episodes of them, including Christmas shows, and they're all at maynard.com.au. And you can find that through iTunes, or if you look for Planet Maynard, it's all under there. And uh, we we love questions, don't we? Oh yeah, we love questions, and also we love you know wry observations. We ignore them and never mention them. We do love that people give it a go. And look, Bunga Bunga is, uh, you've been thinking, is that Bunga Bunga from the Bunga Bunga joke, as in death? Sil- Sylvia, uh, Sylvia Berlusconi's finest work. Mm-hmm. Well, death by Bunga Bunga. <laughs> yeah, death by Bunga Bunga is what it is. And uh, How many episodes do you have to listen to in order to um, overdose and die? Oh, um, I don't know. For you some people, heard... one's enough. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't heard the joke? Would you like to hear the yeah, joke? Bring on the joke. Well, the joke is I'll just go get our food. <laughs> a guy lands on a deserted island, and uh, all of a sudden this tribe turns up of local, local people on this Pacific island. And uh, they all say, wow, this is great. It's great to have you here. Um, but he says something that upsets the king. The king says, that's it. That is it. You have a choice. Bunga bunga or death? The guy says, well, um, uh, what's bunga bunga? He says, well, we all grab you and everybody gets to fuck you up the ass." <laughs> he says, oh, 
I suppose, I suppose I'll go with that. And then the chief says, good, death by Bunga Bunga. And uh, we thought, well, we'll call our, our podcast after that just because it's, it's a podcast aimed to resolve dichotomies. Oh. I mean, when you're faced with that choice, which way are you going to go? And we make sure that it doesn't matter which way you go, you get the same it's answer. It's always going to be the worst. Death by Bunga Bunga. Happy days. Tim Ferguson, thank you very much for coming on The Herd Mentality. Thank you, Adam, you herdster.